And so, Lord God, we thank you for you. You are love. And in Jesus' name, we ask that you would help us to preach. Amen. In 1990, I had the uh, incredible, uh, incredible privilege of traveling behind the Iron Curtain, even as the Iron Curtain was falling. We flew into Hungary and drove into Romania. Uh, at the border, a few miles before the border, we stopped and buried uh, Christian literature in the ground at a gas station. Some of the guys that I was with had been involved in smuggling Bibles, but on this trip we weren't smuggling Bibles, we were just smuggling ourselves and our intention. At the border we were met by men with machine guns, and uh, they asked us all sorts of questions. They weren't concerned about drugs or firearms, they wanted to know if we had Bibles. The Bible had been illegal in Romania for 45 years at at that time. The Bible is the most popular and the most illegal book in the entire world. It's certainly the most banned, I mean, even in this country. Even though it's arguably, well, clearly, the most influential book in all of history and certainly in Western civilization, it's controversial to even discuss it in public schools. There are places where you can be killed for the possession of a Bible. So, so why is that? Why was the Romanian government so concerned about uh, Bibles? Why are they so threatened by the Bibles? Maybe, maybe because the Bible is true. You know, you have to guard lies in a way that you don't have to guard the truth. You have to guard the truth from lies. The Bible is true. There's incredible historical and textual evidence for the veracity of the Bible. We have thousands of ancient manuscripts. Several fragments of the New Testament date back to the second century A.D., and, and one dates back to the first century A.D. That means it was written only decades after Jesus was crucified, the actual parchment that you can date. We have copies of Old Testament documents that date back to 300 B.C. Uh, Allison Schofield, uh, Professor Allison Schofield from DU, is on our church board, which of course means she's famous. But she's also famous because she flies back to Israel and uh, works on the Dead Sea Scrolls and is a renowned scholar on the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of which date to 300 B.C. So the historical and textual evidence for the veracity of Scripture is far greater than it is for any other ancient literature in all the world. There's also incredible archaeological evidence for the veracity of Scripture. When I was at the University of Colorado, hardly a bastion of conservatism, uh, my archaeology professor, Buyos Ayadayad Girgis Palhana, used to begin every class by saying, Students, all that stuff you know is in the Bible is true. I also believe the Bible has a remarkable internal consistency, not a mechanical consistency. For instance, uh, Christ's words at the Last Supper are, are a little bit different in each of the four places that they're recorded, and yet they harmonize in meaning. Scripture's true, but Scripture is absolutely not what you would expect if someone was just writing stuff to, to start a religion. It's true, spoken through many people, several languages, over thousands of years. Scripture's, scripture's true. 
Maybe that's why the Romanian government was so scared of it. Scripture's true, and yet, and yet, the manual to your microwave oven is also true. And the Romanian government seems to be just fine, fine with that. So why were they so afraid? Maybe they're afraid because it's powerful. Charles Spurgeon once said, the way you defend the Bible is the same way you defend a lion. You just let it loose. You don't defend a lion. You know, the Koran, well, the Koran has changed the world, hasn't it? But if you study history, you know that it's changed the world to a great extent at the edge of a sword. And if you criticize the Koran, in several countries, you're likely to meet the sword. The Koran is defended with a sword. Even more than the Koran, the Bible has changed the world. But if you study history, you also know this, that it's changed the world least whenever and wherever it's accompanied with a sword. It's stupid to defend the Bible with a sword. Because <laughs> it's like the Bible is the sword. Whenever and wherever it has been introduced with a metal sword, as in the Crusades, it seems to just like lose all its power. But smuggled into a country like China, where it's illegal, and no sword can stop it. In 1949, when the communists kicked all missionaries, all Christian missionaries out of the country, it's estimated that there were three million believers in China. Today, the number is estimated over 100 million. That's larger than all the members of the Communist Party in China. So the Bible is true. And the Bible is, is, is powerful, but not always powerful. I mean, yours may just be sitting on the shelf collecting dust, demonstrating very little power, like most of the Bibles in the United States of America, where we love power. So anyway, what's the key to unlocking the Bible's power, and why would the Romanian government be so concerned about Bibles? You know, this is our third week in a little mini-series on reading the Bible. Two weeks ago, we began by reading Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We saw that the Word is Jesus. And yet Jesus referred to Scripture as the Word, or at least he seemed to say that, that the Word was in Scripture. When Pharisees twisted Scripture, Jesus said, with your commentary, you make void the Word of God. Pharisees preferred dead words on a page to the living words standing right in front of them. And, and yet some words on some pages can come to life. Jesus referred to the Word as a, a seed. It looks dead, but it contains a kingdom. Kind of like Jesus would look dead. But the body and blood will contain an entire new creation and do. Two weeks ago, the sermon was titled, The Letter. Remember, and I showed you these, some of these letters from, from my wife. It was titled, the, the Letter, and we know that the Bible is a love letter. God is love. And so his word is the word of love, and we are the beloved. Uh, love letters, they cut to the division of soul and spirit, discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
Last week, the sermon was titled, um, The Story. Uh, it's like a, the Bible is like a stack of love letters tied together with a ribbon, and the love letters over time, they, they reveal a, a story. Stories reveal persons. And, and, and in this story, in a, in a love story, uh, the person they reveal is, well, the plot. In the Bible, and in all creation, Jesus is the plot. Because the Bible is a love story, and because you are the beloved, you also become the plot. When we lose ourselves in the story, we find the story in us, and we become the story. In other words, by faith through grace, the Word of God becomes flesh in us. And by the way, I think that's maybe what the Romanian government was so afraid of. The incarnation of the Word. The incarnation of the Word, you say. That's what you say. The incarnation of the Word. What does that look like? Well, it looks just like Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Last week, I was aiming at this text, and we'll read it right now, okay? That very day, this is verse 13, that very day, two of them, them are two of the disciples, but not two of the 12, two unknown, just regular disciples, maybe kind of like you. That very day is the Sunday after the Friday on which Jesus is crucified. That very day, two of them were going to a village near Emmaus, or named Emmaus, about seven miles from uh, Jerusalem. We also know Bethlehem was just right outside of Jerusalem. Uh, but they were going to uh, Emmaus, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They, 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 they were kept from seeing him. It's as if their blindness had a purpose. So maybe your blindness has, has a purpose. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Literally, what are these logoi, these words, what are these logoi that you are throwing at each other, uh, asked the, the logos. And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? Does Jesus not know? He said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped... We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company, they amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart. Bradus, meaning slow, dull, stupid, <laughs> like a stone. 
He said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Maybe the living word is the key to unlocking the power of the written word. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. Did you get that? He acted. He, he, he pretended. In order to cover up what he intended, that they would intend what he had intended. Jesus is like putting the moves on these guys. He acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Here's a really important question. Where did he go? He'd already ascended to the Father. He's about to say, Lo, I am, I'm with you always, to the disciples on a hillside. He vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our heart, heart is singular in the Greek, did not our heart burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen, and it's true. He appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and now he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. I began last week's sermon with the story of a little boy in World War II that Leslie Weatherhead found in the burned out remains of an old building. And he bent down and he asked the boy, son, who are you? And the little orphan boy said, I ain't nobody, nothing. He had lost his story. Well, these two men in our Bible's passage, they feel like nobody, nothing. They just watch their story, their hopes and dreams get crucified on a cross. But in a few paragraphs, they go from nobody, nothing that can't make sense of Scripture to somebody, something that is Scripture. Wow. How does it happen? Well, I'm going to make 12 points, and there are many, many more points, all right? How his story becomes your story, and your story becomes his story. Number one, it happens while walking. It didn't happen in a seminary. Didn't happen in a Bible school. Didn't happen in a church building. You know, people take the knowledge of the good in order to apply the good to them, their, themselves, their own lives. That's human religion, and we know that story. But in this story, Jesus, who is God, applies people to his own life, the body of Christ. Number two, it happens while talking. It happens while walking and, and talking. Didn't happen in a church building. Didn't happen uh, in a school, didn't happen in a, in a seminary, didn't happen in a church building, but it did happen in, in church. The church is two or three people gathered in his name, gathered in his name, walking, living their life together. And he said, uh, we're two or three together, I'll be there, I'll be there. It didn't happen in a church building, seminary, or Bible school, it happened while walking. So, so don't leave scripture here. 
Don't leave it in a school. Don't leave it on your nightstand. Take it, take it walking. It takes on meaning, or the meaning takes on you when you take it walking. And yet, if you never study it, if you never memorize it, if you never read it, you, you, you can't take it, take it walking uh, in, in the first place, right? So, so I hope you study it. I hope you dig into it so that you can take it walking. A rabbi was asked a question by one of his students in regard to Deuteronomy 6.6. And these words which I command thee this day shall be upon thy heart. Why is it said that way? Asked the student. Why doesn't it say these words shall be in thy heart? And the rabbi said, well, it is not within the power of man to place the word of God in his own heart. All that we can do is place the words on the surface of the heart so that when the heart breaks, they will drop in. The hearts of these two disciples were broken. And Jesus himself, the promised seed, dropped the word of God into the most fertile of soils. The most fertile soil is a broken heart. So number three, it often happens in a place of great disappointment. The place where your dreams die. The place where you lose your life. The place, the story, uh, the place where you, you lose the story that you are writing, the story that you have written. Think about these two. They said, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. They had hoped that Jesus was the one who would establish the geopolitical nation state of Israel and drive out the Romans. They had hoped for cabinet positions in his uh, new, new government. Uh, nice families, good houses, 2.5 children with strong teeth and good grades. They had hoped for that. They had hoped that Jesus would help them write their stories. They had, helped, they had hoped that, that Jesus would make their dreams come true, but they had just washed all of their dreams, get nailed to a cross by by Romans. Well, you and I know that their dreams were not too large. They were too small. If you're a follower of Jesus and your dreams die, it's not because they were too big, but too small. Not because they were too great, but too little. You must lose your life to find it. You must lose your little dreams to receive God's dream. You must surrender the story that you're writing to become the story that he has written from the foundation of the world. They thought they'd be somebody something. And now this day they felt like nobody nothing and they wondered if that Jesus was maybe nobody nothing. Just a nice thought. Just a word just an idea, kind of like a seed. Well, Jesus doesn't only redeem the little nation state of Israel. Jesus redeems an entire creation. And it begins with a seed planted in the broken soil of your heart. And the word, the word can break a hard heart. Listen to Jeremiah 23. Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? We have stone hearts, 
And Jesus, the living word, he'll crack them open in order to plant the seed, which is himself. So number four, it often begins as a problem. These two disciples are on their way to Emmaus. Nobody knows exactly where Emmaus is, but we do know that the name Emmaus means warm bath or hot springs. So I have a theory that what these two disciples were seeking on this sad Sunday morning was a day at the spa. I mean, I mean, think about it. Think about it. They've been through the most traumatic event of their lives. All their dreams had been crucified just outside of Jerusalem, and now they just wanted to get away from Jerusalem. They just wanted to get away from all that pain and have a long soak in a hot bath. That was the plan. That was the new plan. Not Jerusalem, Emmaus. But now they're, they're interrupted by this rude stranger asking all sorts of painful questions, interrupted. The great thing, if one can, writes C.S. Lewis, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions to one's own life or real life. The truth is, of course, that what one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life, the life God is sending one day by day. Cleopas and his friend are literally interrupted by life. The life that was actually their life. Remember how Jacob was interrupted in Genesis 32? He's traveling to, planet, to, to Palestine with a plan to secure his blessing and write his own story. When late one night, as he's about to cross over into the promised land, he's jumped by this strange God-man fellow that just like beats the crap out of him. Remember that? The God-man beats the tar out of him and then blesses him. The God-man is the word of God. He's also Jacob's blessing, a blessing far bigger than Jacob could even begin to imagine. The God-man changes Jacob's name to Israel, which means wrestles with God. Well, the God-man that interrupts Jacob's plan is the same guy that's now interrupting the day at the spa. He may have interrupted some of your plans. And he asks difficult questions, so that's number five. It often happens through confusion and a whole lot of questions. I've heard, I've heard Christians say this. Well, that's confusing. And God is not a God of confusion, so that must not be the truth. Well, God is not confused. But, but, but his word sure can confuse people that think they're not confused. I mean, I, I really believe the truth himself will do this. He will literally sneak up on you. He will sneak up on you as you journey uh, on your way to a day at the spa. He'll sneak up on you, disguised so, so you won't recognize him as first, and then he'll just, he'll confuse the hell out of you. So he can speak his heaven India. I've heard Christians say this, don't ask questions, just have faith. Don't ask questions, just say, well, sneaky Jesus is uh, making them ask questions so that they would have faith. If people say don't ask questions, just have faith, they probably have very, 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 very little faith in the truth 
Who is Jesus? Jesus said, seek and you will find. So to seek the truth, well, you need to ask a question. Never love the question more than the answer because then you're not seeking the truth. You're just seeking more questions. Never love uh, the question more than, than the truth, but you must ask the question to know the answer. It's reported that on her deathbed, Gertrude Stein muttered this. What is the question? And then she muttered it again. What is the question? And then she said, she said, if there is no question, then there is no answer. Well, if Jesus really is the answer, the way, the truth, and the life, if Jesus really is the answer, wouldn't it make some sense that our whole existence in this fallen, messed up world is to learn to ask the question? And not just ask it with our brains, with all our, but with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Frederick Buechner writes, don't start looking in the Bible for the answers it gives. Start by listening for the questions it asks. Like, who do you say that I am? Peter, do you, do you love me more than these? You see, you have to take a journey to ask those questions. And the answer is far greater than just some words on a page. The answer is the life. Who, who is your life? And Jesus asked, what are you guys wrestling about? What are these logoi that you're throwing around, casting against each other? And Cleopas says, well, what's wrong with you? Don't you know about the things that have happened in Jerusalem? And Jesus says, what things? Tell me about those things. And they tell him about the women at the tomb. They tell him about the vision of the angels. And so that's number six, pay attention to strange women. And pay attention to weird tales. Jesus will ask you about that. And then they tell him about some men that conducted empirical research at the tomb and found that it was empty. That's number seven. Pay attention to science. Empirical evidence in this physical world. It was created with a word, and it bears testimony to the word. And number eight, uh, pay attention to heartburn. Personal evidence in your heart. You know, if God is a person that made you for himself, this might be the most important evidence of all, that, that the word finds a place in you, to use Jesus' words. That it makes you hope. They said, did not our hearts burn within us? While he talked with us out on the road and opened to us the scriptures. So pay attention to heartburn out on the road. Maybe you see a sunset. Uh, maybe you hear a song. Maybe your kids do something and you think of the word and your heart jumps. Maybe you're up late, late at night, worried and stressed over about how you're going to write your story. And so you're just watching an old movie about an alien that descends to the earth from, from heaven. And, and uh, the, the adults, they're intimidated by the alien. So they want to dissect him, tear him apart and gain his power. But the children, they fall in love with the alien. And, and uh, the alien like dies and, and yet he, he, he lives. He has like a heart that burns with light. And before he sins into the heaven he he takes his alien finger that lights up and he touches little Elliot on the forehead and he says I'll be right here 
and you start weeping. Pay attention to that. That's not just exhaustion and hormones. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Feel the burn. Pay attention to your heart burning with faith, hope, and love out on the road. And pay attention to your heart burning when you read the scriptures. Feel, feel the burn. Feel it. But we don't always like to feel the burn. I mean, we don't like to hope. Because hope means that we're not home yet. And hope means that we are not in control of the story. For if we controlled the story, well, then we'd already have hope. We'd have what we hoped for, right? If we controlled the story, we'd have what we had hoped for, and we would no longer hope. Hope burns, and the burning can hurt. It burns our illusion of control. Think of these two disciples. They had hoped, and now their hopes had been shattered. And now they must be terrified to hope, absolutely terrified to hope in anything more than a nice long hot bath. We've hoped, right? And been disappointed and, and disappointed by this world. And we've hoped and we've been disappointed and so we're afraid to hope again. Well, if, if your hope is in Jesus, who is God's word, scripture says your hope will not return void. And, and yet, and yet it feels void right now. Because it's hope. Hope is like an empty place longing to be filled. And the bigger the hope, the bigger the void that's longing to be filled. Hope expands our hearts so that in the words of Paul, we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Wow, so yeah, that hope burns. So number nine, don't be slow of heart in the words of Jesus, don't be slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Not some of what the prophets have spoken, but all of it. I mean, why are we so quick to believe Isaiah 66, 24? And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Why are we so quick to believe 24, but not verse 23 that tells us who the all flesh are that look on the all dead bodies? From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. All flesh, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies. That must be their own bodies, and they must be in new bodies, all flesh. Why are we so quick to believe Zephaniah 3.8? For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. We're so quick to believe verse 8, and so slow to believe verse 9. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Maybe we're quick to believe the first part, Because we can write that story. All the earth consumed with, we have that technology now. We can do that. But all people filled with new hearts and new bodies worshiping the Lord in one accord, we, we can't write that story. We can only hope for that, and hope burns. And that's kind of ironic, isn't it? Maybe a heart on fire won't be burned by, by the fire. W Paul wrote this, love hopes 
all things. Bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. And, and Jesus said, you will, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind. You will love and love hopes all things. Sounds to me like your hopes can never be too great. Because love hopes all things. And by the way, evil is a no thing. It's the absence of God's things and God made everything. So why are we so quick to believe the first line of Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But so slow to believe the last line of Psalm 22. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Jesus didn't ask them to understand all that the prophets had spoken. He asked them to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, said Jesus. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? Suffer, then glory. That's the plot. If you hide from the suffering, you hide from the glory. They wanted to go to the spa. And Jesus' questions took him right back to the greatest fear, the hill of the skull, where Jesus, the Son of God, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So number 10, don't be afraid to go to the frightening places on the road and in Scripture. You know, through fear, I think the evil one tempts us to seize control and write our own stories. But if you write your own story... There will be no story. There will be no pain. Therefore, there will be no passion. Therefore, there will be no drama. There will be no romance. There will be no color. There will be no poetry. If, if I write my own story, well, my heart, it grows dull and, and hard and, and sad. If I write my own story, it will read something like this. Peter Hyatt went to school. Peter Hyatt got a good job. Peter Hyatt made a lot of money. Peter Hyatt went to the beach, drank a beer, and fell asleep. Peter Hyatt went to the beach, drank a beer, and fell asleep. Peter Hyatt went to the beach, drank a beer, and fell asleep. Peter Hyatt went to the beach, drank a beer, and That's not a good story. One of my favorite movies is titled Big Fish. In Big Fish, Fish Ed Bloom tells Will Bloom the story of his life. In the beginning, Ed Bloom had learned the plot to his own story by looking in an old woman's eye, kind of like a crazy, witchy old prophet. Looking in her eye, he learned how he would die. So Ed recounts his story, and, and we see it in, in the film. He sets out on his life's journey and takes a narrow and frightening path, but comes to this town named Spectre, where everyone writes their own story. And so no one suffers. And all get what they think they want and so stop walking. They throw their shoes over the telephone wire at the edge of town and they stop walking. Inspector, he finds a famous poet who had left his town years before and no one knew what had ever happened to him. He decided to stop in Inspector, but now he can't seem to write even one poem, not one. I've been working on this poem for 12 years. Really? 
There's a lot of expectation. I don't want to disappoint my fans. May I? The grass so green, the sky so blue, Spectre's really great. Satan tempts us all to think that heaven is this world. What do I mean by that? I mean the American dream, a nice house, 2.5 children with good grades and good teeth. He tempts us to think that heaven is a spa day in Emmaus. But maybe we can't get to heaven or appreciate heaven until we've lived the plot. We can't see the glory until we've gone to the hell of the skull. We can't get to Easter until we've traveled through Friday. The evil one seduces us so that we will not keep walking. He seduces us. And if we do keep walking, the evil one will terrify us so that we'll stop. Ed Bloom is seduced by Spectre. But he leaves Spectre because he knows that he hasn't lived the plot. Roses are red, violets are blue. I love Spectre. Tonight. That night I reached two conclusions. The first was that a dangerous path is made much worse by darkness. The second was that I was hopelessly and irrevocably lost. These woods would become my graveyard. As difficult as it was to reach Spectre, I was fated to get there eventually. After all, no man can avoid reaching the end of his life. I realized this wasn't the end of my life. This isn't how I die. I love that. This isn't how I die. Remember, Ed Bloom saw the end, so he knew that this experience was not the end, and so fear lost all its power, and he kept walking. If you think you're at the end, and the end isn't Jesus, well, you're not at the end, so keep walking. Jesus is the plot. Jesus is the beginning and the end. Ed Bloom remembers how he dies, 
And what he remembers is his baptism. At the end of the movie, Ed Bloom gets Will Bloom to believe the plot and tell him the story of his life and the story of how he dies, and he does. They gather at a church. They walk down to a river. They immerse Ed Bloom in the river, and he becomes a big fish. <laughs> baptism. Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Death is a scary place, but it's not the end. Jesus is the end and also the beginning. He's the plot. Your baptism was the revelation of the plot. Remember it and you won't be seduced by this world or terrified by the end of this world, but you'll keep walking into and through all the frightening places on your path. You know, I've read that many of the ancient Jews, they avoided prophecies like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 because they spoke of the Messiah's suffering. And yet it was there, those very prophecies that revealed the Messiah's glory, the glory of God himself. Cleopas and his, his friend, wanted to, they wanted to go to the spa, and Jesus' questions took them right back to the cross, the place of their greatest fear and the place of their greatest shame. God's grace is revealed in our place of shame. Don't be afraid to go to the frightening places in Scripture and the frightening places in your life, for, for you know the plot. You know the plot. Because the plot knows you. The plot, the Logos, the Word of God is living and active. He's walking with you. Did you know that? He's walking with you down the road and you say, well, I don't see him. Well, maybe your eyes are kept from seeing him. Or maybe you do see him. You just don't recognize him. Whatever the case, he's with you. And you can talk to him. So number 11, let Jesus show you, Jesus, the plot. He's the living word. Let him reveal himself in the written word. Verse 27, Jesus shows him the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. You know, all the letters of Susan, this stack of love letters, they all took on meaning uh, for me. Uh, they all came together in the face of one 19-year-old girl saying, Peter, I love you. And all these letters and concepts in Scripture, all these seeming contradictions, the wrath of God and the love of God, compassion and, and mercy and, and vengeance and fire and, and comfort, they all come together in one face. Speaking from a cross, saying, Father, forgive them. Scripture says we've seen the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. And number 11, let Jesus show you Jesus. Talk to him when you read the scripture and invite him in. You are his destination. And he is yours. That's number 12. They invite him in. He was a stranger. And when they invited him in, they invited Jesus in. Dang, there's a whole lot of sermons on, on that one right there. But for now, they invited him in to abide with them and commune with them. Then his story becomes their story 
and their story becomes his story. <laughs> I hope you notice that we're reading about these two nobody-nothing disciples 2,000 years later on the other side of the world. They're not nobody-nothing, but somebody-something. And did you notice that their story is his story? It's in the Bible. We're reading it in the Bible. And did you notice that these disciples changed the, wor the world? They changed, or I should say, the word incarnate in them changed the world. And this is how it happened. They invited Jesus to abide with them and commune with them. A and then somehow, somehow at table, the guest became the host and he took bread and he, and he broke it. And, and he, he gave some to them. He, he gave himself to them. And suddenly they forgot themselves and they saw him and then he vanished from their sight. Where'd he go? Uh, he vanished uh, from, from their sight, and they run back to Jerusalem preaching the gospel, not because they applied the word to themselves, but because the word somehow applied himself uh, to them. The word applied themselves, I should say, to, to him. I mean, they are like the body of Christ, created in God's image with a word. It wasn't far from Emmaus in another little town named Bethlehem, that the Word became flesh. Incarnate, we say. In perfection. Call it Christmas. But the Word is still taking on flesh. Your flesh. We're not perfect, but we're being perfected. The body of Christ. And I found out why the Romanian government was so terrified of Scripture. It was because of that. It has this um, remarkable, amazing way of taking on flesh. And in Romania, I got to meet some of that flesh. I traveled around the country with a guy named Peter. He pulled up his sleeves and showed me the scars on his arm where they had tortured him. They really weren't his scars. They were Jesus' scars emblazoned on his body. In Romania, the body of Christ, filled with the Spirit of Christ, believed the gospel, forsook the fear of death, and singing hymns and Christmas carols, they sparked a revolution. While the government still mowed down dissenters, a hundred thousand people gathered in the central square of Timisoara, and when my friend Peter, with the scars on his body, stood up and said, let us pray, a hundred thousand people spontaneously dropped to their knees, and they prayed the Lord's Prayer for the first time in 45 years in public. Peter showed me the bullet holes. He told me the story the dictator was deposed just a few days later on Christmas Day. But it would be wrong to think that that was a political revolution. It, it was uh, so much more than that. Governments will come and go, but that revolution was so much more powerful than that. It turns out that the guards at the border who had asked us for Bibles, asked us for Bibles because they wanted to read a Bible. <laughs> For it was the first time in 45 years that they could read one without risking their own lives. See, they didn't have to read it. They wanted to read it.
And when I met my Romanian friends, I understood why. Almost everyone in Romania looked like one of the walking dead. I'm not kidding here. It was, it was terrifying to me. Their hearts were hard and dull and slow, and I could understand why. And yet from a hundred yards away, you could spot a believer because they were the only ones that laughed or cried. For in them was life, the life. For on the night that we betrayed the word of God, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. And so we invite you to come to the table and invite him in. Surrender your story to his story and become his story the body of Christ, walking in this world and not stopping. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, we thank you that you set us free. You set us free from this world. You set us free from the little stories that we have written. Lord God, I thank you that you set us free from Emmaus. Because Emmaus is not our destination. Jerusalem is our destination. And not the old Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. And that Jerusalem is who we are. Your people filled with you. And so, Lord God, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I need to say, um, I love Emmaus. <laughs> uh, so there's nothing wrong with hot springs. I love hot springs. In fact, this world is so tiring sometimes and so challenging that sometimes all I want to do is get a big bottle of wine, go sit in the hot springs, and never get out. But do you understand Emmaus is a trap? And Emmaus is not your destination. Your destination is Jerusalem. And so God sends his word to you so that you would keep walking and he even walks inside of you and he walks uh, with you. Sometimes when I get like that, I just want to stop. I just want to quit. I, I can't take it. Sometimes I'll get up and I'll watch Christian TV and it drives me crazy because I think this isn't working. And then I'll go read the Bible and I realize, oh, it's working perfectly. I remember the plot, and I keep walking. You are not destined for Emmaus. You're destined for the new Jerusalem, and that's who you are. So in Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.